Let's pray. God, we just thank you for this morning. God, we thank you, God, for your work, God, for your people, for your church, God, for your word, God, for your faithfulness. And God, as we go through this message this morning, God, I pray that you would just meet each of us right where we are. God, that it would speak life. Father, it would change hearts. And God, that ultimately we would leave here differently in the way that we came in because of you, God, because of the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're going to continue on in our Exile and Hope series. Have you, have you enjoyed it? Yeah, very good. I have as well. We've got one more week after this. Uh, Pastor Dom will be sharing next week, and then we're going to be jumping into our Easter series. Isn't that amazing that that is already here? Almost here. We almost mark a year from when craziness started. We're almost there. But we're going to continue in this one here, and today we're going to cover chapter 2, and we're going to cover verses 4 through 8, and kind of help us keep some context uh, from where we came from last week with Pastor Ben's message there. He kind of, there's kind of been two thoughts that have been flowing through this entire series, Um, and one of them is the fact that what is our audience? It's the exiled believers, right? That he brought to in verse 1 Peter 1, 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, right? So still flowing with that thing. His letter is still growing to these people here. And so I titled the message, A Spiritual House We Are, because that's going to be kind of the center point of the focus it's kind of funny, last night, whenever I was going over my notes, Rachel and I were, were talking through them, and she's like, a spiritual house we are? I was like, and I'm like borderline trying to go to sleep, you know, trying to be a faithful husband and listen, and I'm like, yeah, you don't like it? She's like, I don't know that I really get it. I was like, it makes perfect sense to me. And I was like, I must... I mean, clearly I had done something wrong at that point is what I really felt. And then I was like, well, it's too late now. I was like, I'm going with it. She's like, well, it kind of sounds like Yoda. I was like, well, that's what I was going for, right? A spiritual house we are. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just just roll with that. And then this morning as we were doing some more research on the English language, there's actually, I actually did something grammatically correct. What's the word? Antrophy, antrophy, where you actually switch, you invert the, the word to bring emphasis. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to make emphasis of a spiritual house, and I wanted y'all to know that we are that spiritual house. So now you know the title. Thank you for helping me to bring clarity to my ignorance. But these exiles were spread out all over, right? But there's this feeling of being disconnected as an exile, wouldn't you say? Isn't that by definition kind of what an exile is? You're not in connection to the norm. So there would have been clearly this feeling that they would have had of that. And then not only are they, are they speaking to exiles, there would have been a persecution and a suffering that the church would have been experiencing at that time. We've been talking about that week after week. And if we go back to verses 1 through 3, that's where we, we kind of saw that play out. We feel the weight of that. And then even last week's message talked about how we should respond in, in spite of all of that, right? It says, and so put away, right? All malice. And it went through those different things. So that's where we're going to pick up this morning in verse 4. But I'd like for you, if you could please stand with me, and we're going to read out this section of text. 
And starting in verse 4, it says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Thank you, God, for your word. You may be seated. So going back to last week, there was two imperatives or commands that we saw there in verse 1 and 2 that I think really bring us into this section of the text. Uh, first of all, the one in verse 1, it says, to, so put away, right? So that's the command there, so put away. And what is he speaking to specifically there is, as a believer, what is our heart? What is our response to when others are in opposition to us? How do we do that? And it goes through, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, right? And then it says to long for the pure spiritual milk. So the command there for us is that we are to long for the pure spiritual milk, which is what? God's word. As believers, we should have a longing for that. So we put away, we long for and we're going to see this flow here of spiritual throughout the text. So we saw spiritual milk, right? And last week, we're going to see spiritual house here today and spiritual sacrifices. So we consider you see this thread of spiritual moving through because as a New Testament believer, we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. We are spirit-filled. So all that we do should be in connection to things that are spiritual. And Peter's showing that flow as we move through here. And it's our context for the hope that we ultimately have, that this Holy Spirit dwells within us as believers. In the Old Testament, what did they have to do for that? They had to go to the, to the temple. They had to be able to have access through priests. It was a completely different thing. But for us today, we have a Spirit-filled life, and sure should. So those two imperatives, commands, take us and launch us right in to where we are. And it's where... We're going to start ultimately with this text, but it also shows us how we are to do so. And we'll launch in in the first part of verse 4, and it says, As you come to him. So how do we come to him? By putting away and by longing for. So now that we've done those things, now we go and it says, So as you come to him. And that's just a really important thing that we see there in the text because it really sets the stage for what we're about to move through. So as you come to him. So there's this picture there of coming to him. And in the, the Greek verb usage of that word come, it is, it's, it's very intentional. And I realize come makes sense as far as what the word is. But it's one that actually speaks to not only do we come, but it's a coming to stay. It's an abiding. It's not, just, it's not just touch and then go and be done with it. It's something that you're just continually longing and yearning for. The Greek word, therefore, is prosherkamai. And what it is, it's actually two different words. It's the one that speaks to, to coming. And then the first part of it is pros, which speaks with intensity. So it's not just a lackadaisical walking into it. It's we come with a, with a fervency, with a hunger, with a desire, ultimately, for the Lord. John fifteen five says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
So we come to abide, to stay, to be a part of who the Lord is. And it brings us to our first point that Jesus is the living stone upon what a spiritual house is built. Jesus is the living stone upon what a spiritual house is built. Now this first point we're going to go through this morning is is a little long, so I want you to hang in there with me. But I think it's important for us to set up some of the story and what's actually going here and what Peter's trying to tell him. So we're going to continue. Verse 4 It says, once again, as you come to him, so that's speaking about you and I, it then transitions a little bit, because then it says, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And the things I want us to look at here is the fact that we're talking about a living stone, we're talking about being rejected, and this idea of being chosen and precious. And I'm going to go through it a little quicker here, because we're going to get into it a little bit more detail further in the point. But you'll notice there's some stone metaphors in this passage if you've read ahead, as we did earlier. There's a couple things that we we need to look at, and there's actually two different stones being discussed. There's Jesus as the stone, and then there's the believers as another. We're going to see how those kind of go back and forth in this section of text. Because after the word him there, comma, there's a shift. Then it begins to speak about Jesus. And it's, the way it's arranged makes it a little difficult to see, but then it's talking about Jesus. And the references that we see there were drawn from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 28, Psalms 118, and also in Isaiah 8 as we move through. The ones we read earlier, did you recognize those scriptures? Is that ones you've heard before? The idea of a cornerstone, rejected, right? Ones we've heard before, and that's where Peter is getting that section from. But I think it's interesting, this first part, it says in the first metaphor we see that Jesus is a living stone. Jesus is a living stone, and that word usage there actually changes throughout as well. That one right there in the Greek is lithos, and it means a building stone. It means one that was specifically made, cut, and carved for construction, for a specific purpose. It wasn't just one they dug up out the ground and just so happened to be there. It was one that was shaped and one that was ultimately fashioned. And this would have been really common for them in that day because the idea of a rock. Jesus, I mean, God's called the rock all throughout the Old Testament, right? So it's this picture coming here of being a living stone. But why is Christ a living stone? Because he's resurrected. He's not dead anymore, right? That's what we celebrate every Sunday is the resurrection. That's why each Easter we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not, he's not dead. But then it tells us something else about it. It says he's rejected by men. Specifically speaking to that Jewish culture there, the men and women that were very much a part of actually rejecting Jesus during that day, the day in which Peter would have been writing that people have still rejected ultimately the word of God. For you and I here today that we still have people that reject the Lord Jesus Christ, there are people here today that have still rejected the Lord for their Savior. So this picture is completely applicable throughout all time, rejected by men. But even still, even for those believers there, and I think this is important for us to see these exiles, would they have not also felt rejection? Dispersed out all over the place, people coming against them. So Peter's given some encouragement here as well. He's speaking to the truth of who Jesus is, but he's also speaking to the realities that they would have felt as well. And I think that's true for us here today. And it says, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Isn't that just such... Good words. I love, I love when we see that conjunction there, but, in Scripture. Especially when it contrasts man 
with God and just how good he is and the work that he ultimately does. So despite being rejected, in God's eyes, still chosen and precious. We too as believers here today are chosen and precious. If you've named him as your Lord and Savior. And I think of the value that comes whenever someone chooses you for something. You like being picked for something? Right? Assuming it's something that's good, right? Right? You know, but isn't there just something, there's, there's value that comes with being chosen, right? Does that mean someone did that on your behalf ultimately? But I, like what, I, love, to, I love to see how Peter is working here because what we're going to see is we're going to see Peter begin to, as he's going through this, he's expositing some Old Testament scripture. He's taken, he's taken the truth that he knows and he's, he's drawing back on the words of the prophets and he's bringing it into modern day. Of course, in this scenario, he too is actually bringing, back, bringing out the word of God, the inspired word that we have here today for us. And as I mentioned, this is coming from Isaiah 28, Psalms 118, and also Isaiah 8 as well. But I think there's just an important truth for us as we go through this to remember that it's important in our lives to look how Scripture proves out Scripture. And when you're doing your study and you're going back and forth and you see things, that you take that truth and, and you test it against other truths in the Scripture. God was faithful to do so in his word. And I see Peter expositing that here. And I'm so thankful that we do that here at Living Word Church, that we take God's word and we study it and we have a deeper love and a deeper understanding for it week after week. But Peter starts off with a really, really bold proclamation. And I'm going to jump down to verse 6 here. And my prayer is that this would be the heart of us here at Living Word Church in so many ways because he says right off the bat, he says, for it stands in Scripture. That's a really important phrase. For it stands in Scripture. What is Peter standing on? Is he standing on his own words? He's standing on the truth of Scripture. And I'm going to read just the first part of 6. It says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. I'm laying a stone. Right, so Zion is a picture for us of the New Testament covenant. It's Christ's established kingdom. And this is, this is the prophet speaking way back, saying this in this point. Obviously, it would have spoken also to Israel, specifically Jerusalem. And it would have been in contrast to the Old Testament that would have used Mount Sinai as its hinge point versus for the New Testament for that time of Zion, right? One that spoke of earthly blessings versus judgment of the law. There would have been a back and forth that he would have been wanting to show them here. But Christ is what? The cornerstone of that to happen, it says there. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And when I, anytime I think about stones in the Bible and I think about times that it's used because it's, you know, it's, it's talked about regularly, right? I always think about the story with Peter when he's talking to Jesus and he asks him, you know, who do you say that I am? And he ultimately says that you are the Christ. And he says, man did not reveal that to you, but, but God has revealed that to you. And that's a, and that's a truth that so many years ago the Lord, the Lord settled out in my heart. Actually, it was one of the, it, it's not the, obviously the first thing, but it's the thing that I most profoundly remember my dad sharing with me and explaining to me what that meant. And the idea that Peter was this little rock. He was Petros. And this big rock, this idea of the Petra was the foundation by which the church would be built. The truth that he's the, he's the Lord, he's our Lord and our Savior. His death, his burial, and his resurrection is by which we're saved. It's not just on a man or an idea. 
as many people do in our culture today, but it's on the truth of who God is. So this idea of rock, pebbles, stones, has so much important context as we move throughout the Bible as a whole. But there are some architectural things that are happening here as well, because he says about a cornerstone. Well, first of all, a cornerstone in that day was a very critical component for the construction of the temple, of whatever structures they would make. We don't really see it the same in our, in our building today because we have monolithic slabs and we have things that are, we're not carving stuff out of rock anymore. But for them, this idea of a cornerstone was, really, was a really, really big deal. And in the Greek, it's an agrokoneus, agrokoneus. And it means not only the corner, but it's the corner of prominence. It's the one that everything is built off of. It's the anchor point. It's ultimately the foundation of that structure, of that building. Today you may walk down you know, a big city and you may see on the corner of a building uh, what would be a representation of a cornerstone. Maybe they have the date that the building was made. Maybe they've got a name of who it was dedicated to. Sometimes it's just this different color brick on the corner. Um, and that's just a, an inspiration of architecture that we see today. But in that day, it was a real deal. I remember Pastor Clyde sharing a story with us. I can't remember what structure that was. What was that one you said? That it was like 60-something feet? The Temple Mount, this massive stone that was there that was in place, that was what the structure was anchored off of. But not only was it foundational from, a, from mass and from size, what I thought was cool, remember back in the beginning when it said that Jesus was a living stone and the word was lithos, a, a building stone, one that was exact, one that was precise. Well, not only was that stone used as an anchor point, but the lines by which it was cut is what all of the lines of the construction came off of. Lateral lines, vertical lines, plumb, square, everything was built off of that cornerstone. And I think when you understand the reality of that and realize that it's more than just this big rock, that it was somebody ahead of time knew what that building needed to look like and took the time to start with that first stone and make it exactly the way in which it needed to be so that those people could construct off of it and could move forward with it. So we're working with this idea of Zion, a cornerstone, and being chosen and precious. And I think there's but yet another truth here as we move through this, specifically speaking to the idea of accepting or rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ, So the first part is for us as the believer, for those of you today that the Lord has saved you. Verses 6b and the first part of 7 says, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Whoever believes. And that first part there, shame, just sticks out, right? Shame is to be disappointed, right? One of the songs we sang this morning talked about the reality of our shame that comes from what? Our sin. But Jesus took our shame. I'd always think about Adam and Eve when they first had knowledge of their sinfulness. What did they do? They hid. It was shame that came ultimately with it. But God takes that. He said, we will not be put to shame. And what's so cool is as that cornerstone is laid and as those blocks begin to be built upon it, as long as, long as those, those, those stones are being built in the process What a beautiful picture of what the Lord has done for us. What a beautiful picture of our eternal security in Christ through salvation. That he sets those stones exactly where they need to go. He didn't mess up where he put the stone. The stone doesn't just arbitrarily fall off of the the wall one day when it decides to. 
They're there because the builder has specifically placed them. And that's, that should be just a place of hope and rest for us as a church. But not only does he say he does what is, gets rid of the shame, it says that he does what? So the honor is for those who believe. What, a, what an amazing word there. The idea of being precious in our value. A fixed price. Something that was of high value and being chosen ultimately by God. But then there's those of you here today that don't know the Lord. He's not the Savior, ultimately, of your life. And he spent some time speaking about that here in verses 7, the latter part into 8. He said, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The unbeliever rejects the truth of the gospel. The truth that you either accept it or you reject it. Just as a mason builder, it gives us this picture here, would have been looking at this stone and says, nah, this is not the one I want to use. It's rejected. He tosses it off to the side, right? It's, it's, it's no longer in his place. But, but little to him that he should have known that that is the one in which he should have used. Is that not the picture for us here today? As he would have been speaking to those exiles Given him the hope and the confidence. Jesus was rejected before you were. He was exiled before you was exiled. For us here today, he knew what we would walk through. He knew what we would have to deal with. He knew the rejection that we would take as believers. But he says, take hope in that. I've been there. I'm doing this for you. But not only does that rejected stone get placed off, and they trip over it. Right? It says, and a stone of stumbling... And a rock of offense. There's two words here. There's two things that are said. The stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. And those are actually two different things. The stone of stumbling is this picture of one that's there and they're walking on their path. And they stumble and they trip. Right? And that being Christ. They stumble over it. But then the, one, the next one, a rock of offense, speaks to the word that rock actually is Petra. Which means a big rock. Something that does much more damage than just a stumbling. It ultimately brings fatal injury. The picture would have been for them if they stumble on something and then they fall off into this big, big hole where there's a rock that actually would bring them to their physical death. So some serious language, right? At a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Jesus even talked about this in the New Testament when he was speaking in Luke about the, remember the parable of the wicked tenants? He left him to take care of his vineyard, and he went to get them to, to check back in on him, and he sent three different people in there. What did they do each time that they went? They beat him, whipped him, different fashion, sent him back. So finally he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son. That'll, that'll resonate with him. And what did they do to him? They killed him, right? Of course, Jesus is talking in a parable, and he's specifically speaking about who? Talking about himself. But look what it said there, the last part of Luke 20, 17 and 18. It says, but he looked directly at them and said, what then is it, what then this that is written, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It's serious. It's serious. And Jesus would have been, even there's some foreshadowing. We saw that in the Old Testament with Daniel, verses chapter 2, 44 and 45. And it said, in, those, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. 
It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring to them an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Right? We know Daniel was, was given interpretation to that dream for the king. But the picture there is like it brings, it brings destruction at the, at the ultimate part of rejection. And don't misunderstand what I'm not saying. You are not appointed to disobedience or to unbelief. But rather your disobedience is what destines you to your doom. Lest you make a decision for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not just you want a better life. It's not just that you need some problems dealt with and then you'll be okay. It's us coming to grips with the reality that God is sovereign and holy and man is wicked and sinful. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the only thing that bridges that gap. Nothing that we do in our own effort, but we walk in that. But Jesus has given, some, given through Peter here some very strong things for us to think about. So as we move through that, I want us to bounce back to verse 5 and show how this is connecting with us. And it brings us to our second point. The believers are the living stones that make up a spiritual house. Believers are the living stones that make up a spiritual house. I'm going to read the first part of 4, and then I'm going to remember that section there we talked about Jesus, and it comes back to us. So as you come to him, jump ahead to the first first part of verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And if we remember back in the beginning, we're saying that we come to him. Right? So the same thing holds true. We're coming to him now, and we're coming as believers, as these living stones. But like, first of all, he's telling a stone to come. Isn't that an oxymoron? Do stones move? Do they have any ability in and of themselves? I mean, stones are just inert lifeless things, right? I thought about that yesterday when I was riding on that track and in one spot there was like this really massive rock that just got up-earthed from the dirt, which I thought was going to bring me doom, honestly, because I couldn't get around it. But like that thing, I was like, man, it'd be nice if that thing would get out of the way the next time I come. But stones don't move, right? But he's saying, come to him, and not only is he saying, come to him, he says, as a living stone. I mean, how do you say something is stone dead, right? I think the, it's pretty clear Stones are ultimately dead. But what Jesus was showing here is that he's the living stone. And we are united in him. Therefore, you are like living stones, right? Being built up as a what? A spiritual house? We are. A spiritual house we are. I think to Luke 19, when I think about this idea of stones and when a stone has shown some level of life and the disciples were were praising God as he was coming in right the triumphant entry into Jerusalem and the Pharisees and all say you know you need to rebuke those disciples for saying what they're saying about you and Jesus turns and he says I tell you if these were silent the very what stones would cry out I don't think it was an accident that Jesus used that terminology and used those words over and over again so the answer to what does it mean for us to be a living stone? Why are we a living stone? It's our identity of who we are in Christ. 
We are so closely united with Christ as a believer that he has given us this beautiful picture here that you yourselves are like living stones, being compared to the living stone. And consider what kind of hope that would have been for the exile. When he's saying, you exiles, you're connected to me. The house that's being built, the kingdom that is being built is outside of what you see going on around you, but it is, it is being built nonetheless, and you are ultimately connected to me. We think back to that cornerstone in the building. I always think about the story about the three little pigs, right? Those of you who have little kids, like, that's a scary story, first of all. I'm just saying. Like, that, you could probably somehow insert the gospel into that message, and I'm sure people would get saved, because that is a scary story. But kids, nonetheless, are put to sleep by it, night after night. It's... But thank the Lord that... The message of the gospel and a cornerstone is much bigger than wood, hay, straw, sticks and stubble and stones and whatever else the pigs use. And pigs don't build anything anyway. <laughs> but this picture of being a living stone, being built up as a house. I, I got some, actually, speaking of kids, I got some blocks. How many of y'all have blocks like this at your house? You know, I got blocks like this? They hurt, they hurt really bad at night. They're always all over the house. When I, whenever Chuck was building this for me, he said, you know, he said, I could glue them together. And there was a part of me that wanted to say, let's glue them together. Because that would have been like eight less pieces around the house. But we did, and we used tape. Um, but the picture I wanted to show here is this idea of, of a cornerstone. And this is obviously really, really heavy. So after service, don't come try and hold this. Um, but you see how these, these angles are square? The picture I was showing earlier, this is what it would have, this is what would have been set and then would have been used to build off of. And the picture here is that the house, the spiritual house is being built, is that of that, off of ultimately that cornerstone. And not only is it being built here at Living Word Church, this is all over the world. God's kingdom is much bigger than all that. He doesn't, he's not relegated any longer to a temple. And I believe it's another picture for those exiles of seeing I'm building despite what you're seeing going on around you. The church is in a constant state of being built up. Is that not encouraging? Like when you look out into, in, into the world, do you feel like the church is being built? In some ways, like if you, I mean, I realize you know it is. But like, are there times when you're like, man, where is the church? Right? Isn't that a real feeling that we have? But our hope is here that the Christ is doing his work and building his church and setting stone upon stone regardless of what we see around us. And that we read in Psalm 46, that he is above all in doing all of these things. The foundation is in Christ. It's founded ultimately in the truth of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid in what? Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Not just a family, but a household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which that would have been the Scripture of which we've received. And Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. If the church is not built upon this foundation, a foundation of the truth of Scripture, it will fail because it is not a true church. A church is founded on the truth of Scripture. What happens when men try to build a church and of their own effort? Does it succeed? There might be some successes, but there's no eternal success. 
It has to be built on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the scriptures that we now have because of the prophets and the apostles, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When you think about building, I think about most recently last year that construction um, catastrophe that happened with the Hard Rock Cafe in New Orleans. And I think about, the, you know, obviously I don't know all the details of it. Clearly something went wrong. Um, so I'm not here to bring indictment to anybody specifically, surely. But I just think about the shame, the injury, the pain that came with having to deal with the fact of loss of life and all of those for those people there. Right? Because ultimately, whatever happened, there was a failure in the construction of it. There was a failure some, at some foundational level that caused it. And I think what it looks like for us in our life, and it says that he took our shame, right? And he gives us honor. The shame that would have come, the shame that comes with those, potentially those architects, engineers, construction company, workers, wherever it is, of what happened there. But what just such a greater picture for us as believers of where we will go on apart from Christ? As we come to him on this foundation of Scripture, there's something, there's a response for us. And we see this here in the text, bringing us to our third point, that a spiritual house glorifies God. A spiritual house glorifies God. And it continues in verse 5, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What an amazing close it is to this powerful verse talks about who we are, and it takes it even further. More hope for us, more hope for those exiles. And there's two things I want us to look at here. First one being to be a holy priesthood. To be a holy priesthood. Because first of all, who's the great high priest? The Lord Jesus, right? He's, the, he's our example. He's the way by which we guide our lives. And in Hebrews 4.14 it says, since, then, So it's because of the fact that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as as we are yet without sin. So a priesthood, Jesus models it for us. It started with Aaron, right? They were the ones that were the most closely acquainted with God. They had access to God different from other people. So for you got to think for in that day for the for the person living specifically in that time, they would have actually seen the Old Testament priesthood walked out. But Peter's saying, "No, you are a holy priesthood." That had weight. That had weight to it. We don't see it quite the same today because we didn't we didn't we have continual access to Christ because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the work of the cross. But those people didn't. That was for certain people. That was set to that. Actually, there was 20, and when the way it was set up in those temples, there was 24 courses of priests throughout the entire year. It was a rotation of sorts. And those priests would have a rotation of, of doing, doing that in the temple. Sometimes it was one, two-week time frames. And the, and, the great, and the high priests would come in once a year into the Holy of Holies for the Day of Atonement. Right, So there was this, this, was this regimental process of, of keeping, it, keeping it holy and falling into line with what God had set up for that. But our priesthood is, is different. We have, we have regular access as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But remember that, remember that, and this is, this is, once again, this just blows my mind when I see these truths in Scripture. Remember we talked about come to him at the beginning and what that meant, that there was a fervency to it. It was one which we would come to stay, to abide. There was effort. There was, there was energy that was with it. But not only is it that abiding and that urging coming, it's this picture of a continual, habitual coming to the Lord over and over and over and over again, day after day, day after day, need after need, because he has granted us the ability to do so. And it brings us such hope, no matter what's going on around us. I think about the time when Rachel and I were young and we, we decided to start planning for a family. And we were, um, I, I believe we were, no, it was, this was the very first time. And, and Rachel, Rachel miscarried early on. And many of you have experienced that. And I remember thinking, man, I just thought this kind of stuff happened to other people. Not to me. This is, this is tough. This is hard to see my wife there and just pain and agony. And I'm like, I don't even, you know, I'm, I'm barely married, much less trying to understand how does all of this, how does this all work? What do I do? What do I say? How do I help? And like, there are really no words. But what I saw the Lord do in Rachel's life during that time just really blew my mind. It was a settling in of, of her saying that her hope was not was not in herself, was not in us, but decided that if she can continually come before the throne of grace to her father, to her king, in a way in which was necessary for growth. And each one of you have a story here today, something like that. It might be a miscarriage, it might be a death, it might be someone's life. But the hope for us is that we can continually come as a holy priesthood to the Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over we come, it's a habitual thing that we do. We see in Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence, some of yours may say boldness, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in this time of need. This picture that we can come as a holy priesthood, because we are a spiritual stone, what great hope comes for that? But not only can we come, but we then offer sacrifices. Is that not what the priest did? Is that what they came to do? The Old Testament is a primary function of, of coming in and bringing these sacrifices. But under the New Covenant, this was no longer necessary. And it tells us in the last part of that text to offer acceptable spiritual sacrifices. And that's that third spiritual. Remember, we talked about spiritual milk. We talked about a spiritual house. And now this idea of a spiritual sacrifice. Do we have any other option other than spiritual sacrifices? No, we don't do bulls and goats and rams and those sorts of things. All we do is spiritual. But not only is it spiritual, it's acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And I think this is still something that we have to take just as serious as they were expected to do during that day. What happened to people that didn't come to God with a holy, acceptable sacrifice? What happened to Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu? Killed them. Holiness matters. The sacrifices that we bring to the Lord are spiritual sacrifices because they're acceptable to the Lord Jesus Christ. But how do we do this? What does that look like, right? What's the context for us? And I think Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a perfect picture of that. Paul speaking to the Roman church and he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy 
and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As he talks about there, a living sacrifice, what's the problem with the living sacrifice? Because they didn't bring living sacrifices, ultimately, right? They killed them. Living sacrifices keep wanting to jump off the altar. That's you and us. It's you and I today. We, it's a continual dying to ourself that we have to do. Because we just don't necessarily like it certain times when the pressure comes and the heat's there. We keep trying to get out of the way, but as a church here today, as, a, as the exiles that Peter was talking to there, it will only happen through the being, being rooted in Scripture. Right? The foundation of Jesus Christ, the prophets and the, word, and the apostles that they're given. So my question is, what are you doing each day as a believer? How are you rooting yourself in the study of Scripture? How are you growing in your understanding? How are you meditating on God's word so that you can have greater understanding of it, so that it can have greater impact on your life, so that you can go out and show and tell others of it? I love how it's progressed throughout this text. It talked about the fact that we are a living stone, that we're united in Christ. Then it talks about because of that, a spiritual house is being built up, right? And then because of that, a holy priesthood with continual access to the Lord Jesus Christ, offering spiritual sacrifices. And in that section there in Romans, it talks about that we would be conformed to the will of God. That's going to come through prayer. It's going to come through the understanding, ultimately, of it is. But how do we respond? How do we respond? Obviously, we pray and we have great thanksgiving. We view high, we view high God inside of man. I heard a quote a couple weeks ago from Pastor Steve Lawson, and I thought it was just so profound. It says that high theology produces high doxology. The higher our view of God, the higher our praise will rise to him. Wow. That says something about us. The higher God is, the higher our worship will be. And that's not just through the worship of music. That's in every part of our life. When people look at us, they see that our lives are a life of worship. One that exalts high the name of God. And I would like us actually today to end in this way, this idea of worshiping God through this song. And many of you know the song Cornerstone, quite fitting. So we're going to sing that song to close here. So if you could please rise to your feet and let's offer in this way a spiritual sacrifice to our Lord. Nothing left
cornerstone. God, what a hope for your church. God, what a hope for us in this time. God, my heart is is that all of us were impacted in some way today. God, for the believer, Father, that we were drawn into greater Christ-likeness and that our heart would be set on you and that we would lay hold of the fact of being a holy priesthood, able to offer spiritual, acceptable sacrifices. And for those of you that may here, be here today that don't know the Lord, you currently are that one that rejected Him. You've stumbled upon His truths. It's foolishness to you. I believe the Lord is working in your heart. We want to talk to you and we want to share with you. And we're going to have someone out front. I'll be down here. Our pastors will be here. Our heart is to see people come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for being here. And God, we give you all the glory, and we submit all of this to you, and we worship you in all that we do. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I love you. We'll see you next week.